0: Clearshore presents Technology, Innovation, and Modern War. Class 10. The DOD and Modern War. And Michelle Flournoy. By Steve Blank. November 5th, 2020 at steveblank.com. We just held our 10th session of our new national security class, Technology, Innovation, and Modern War. Joe Felter, Ra and I designed a class to examine the new military systems, operational concepts, and doctrines that will emerge from 21st century technologies, namely space, cyber, AI and machine learning, and autonomy. Today's topic was the DoD and Modern War. Some of the readings for this week's introduction to AI and modern war included, war on autopilot, will it be harder than the Pentagon thinks, considering military culture and values when adopting AI swarms of mass destruction, Joby Aviation raises $590 million led by Toyota to launch an electric air taxi service, and linking combat veterans and valley engineers. With Michelle Flournoy, former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, joining us, we also assigned her recent article in Foreign Affairs, How to Prevent a War in Asia with CNAS report, Sharpening the U.S. Military's Edge, Critical Steps for the Next Generation. Michelle Flournoy is rumored to be Joe Biden's candidate for Secretary of Defense. She served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from February 2009 to February 2012. She was the principal advisor to the Secretary of Defense in the formulation of national security and defense policy, oversight of military plans and operations, and in national security council deliberations and led the development of the department of defense's 2012 strategic guidance she's currently co-founder and managing partner of west exec advisors and former co-founder and chief executive officer of the center for a new american security cnas a bipartisan national security think tank i've extracted a few of michelle's key insights and urge you to read the entire transcript and watch the video Throughout the 1990s, we were focused on how to integrate China into the global system so that it would become a responsible stakeholder. And we did everything we could. WTO membership, all kinds of collaborative efforts. That worked for a while, but at a certain point, particularly under President Xi, China decided that the hide-and-bide strategy was over. It was time to take their claim, their rightful place in the international community be more assertive in pursuing their agenda in an international forum, and in particular in the Asia Pacific, and it became clear then that we have a number of areas where we really don't see eye to eye. Our interests and objectives are in conflict. Whether it's economic, technological, military, there are very important competitions that we're going to have with China over the coming years that will determine the U.S. ability to protect its own economic vitality but also our security and that of our allies. That said, there are also problems when you look around the world, whether it's the next pandemic or climate change or non-proliferation, where if the United States and China don't figure out how to cooperate with one another, we will both be in deep trouble. So, there has to be a cooperative element of the relationship as well. And so, that's why I don't like the Cold War frame. I think the name of the game is managing this competition fostering cooperation where we can. Really focusing on deterring conflict between two nuclear powers, which by definition would be a disaster. Is China becoming more confident in their capabilities and doubt of our own? They definitely are becoming more confident in their own abilities. They've invested a lot in anti-access area denial strategy and you see thousands and thousands of different kinds of precision munitions, rockets and missiles. They are doing a pretty good job of trying to create a situation where it will be very costly for us to go inside the first island chain or even a second island chain, but they are not ten feet tall, they have a lot of challenges as a military as well. But the thing that worries me most is the narrative that's taking hold in Beijing about the United States, particularly in the wake of our mishandling of the pandemic, the onset of another recession, the sort of divisions and protests you see on the streets. It's given rise to a narrative of US decline, US self-preoccupation, US turning inward, and to the extent that Chinese leaders start to believe that and really believe that we have not done what is necessary to counter their a 2 system, They could gain a sense of false confidence that might get them to take more risk-taking behavior, to push the envelope a little too far, a little too fast, maybe cross some red lines they don't know they're crossing. So, it's on us to be very clear, the United States, about our reserve, our commitment to defending our interests and allies and how we define those, and to make really clear investments in the capabilities that will ensure our ability to project power and protect those interests in the future. I think the real long pole in the tent is in developing new operational concepts in light of a clear eyed assessment of what we're going to face from either China or for example Russia's A280 network in Europe. It focuses us into an uncomfortable position. We like to be dominant in every domain. We like to be the one to beat. Here, in every case. We're going to have to be the asymmetric challenger. You've got a resident power with a huge set network of capabilities. They're going to have more quantity than us. We're going to have to figure out how to fight it asymmetrically for our advantage. And so that means first and foremost that we really do have to think about new concepts. We have to have much more competitive processes for developing those concepts. Not sort of building consensus on lower common denominator, concepts where everybody gets an equal share of the pie. Not interested in that? We have to link that to a lot of prototyping of new capabilities, experimenting with those new capabilities, see how they can inform the new concepts and vice versa. So, this is a very fragile, iterative process of bringing new technologies and prototyping systems. Playing them in war games, playing them in simulations, playing them in different experiments, taking their feedback, those learnings, bringing it back to inform the next iteration of the design and so forth. This is the process that's going to get us to the right place and it's something that's just really, really hard for the Department of Defense to do. We're not set up to do that quickly or well or at scale. So how should the DoD realign its concepts, culture, programs and budgets? Well, first the sense of urgency you do hear at the top among the Pentagon leadership is not necessarily fully shared throughout the bureaucracy. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. We've started to adjust our acquisition approach and the departments have put out some very useful new guidance on how to approach software acquisition in a very different way than hardware acquisition. But we haven't necessarily trained our acquisition people incented them to have a greater risk tolerance that's required for this agile development of emerging technologies. Nor have we created real awards, promotion paths, career paths for that. And so there's a huge human capital effort to be done here to raise the overall tech literacy of all of the folks, from the program managers to the operators, but also to bring more tech talent into government to really help speed the transformation process. And that requires, again, some culture change. We're not going to keep tech talent if they walk into a typical Pentagon office today. You've got to create a different operating culture. And I do think there are some great examples. Kessel Run in the Air Force for the Joint AI Center and parts of SOCOM. These are pockets where they're trying a different approach, different culture, and having some success attracting the kind of tech talent the department needs. We just need to do all that at a much greater scale and with greater urgency. Thanks to organizations like DIU, we've gotten much better at tech scouting, finding promising technologies that might have a military application and getting them on that initial contract, on a SBIR contract or an OTA prototyping contract. But the real problem is that almost everybody hits the famous valley of death. So you've done a great prototype you've won the demonstration, everybody loves you. And then they say, well, the next time we can actually insert you into the program and for a production contract in 2023, two and a half years from now. And for a startup, that's like, what do you mean? I've got to have access to recurring revenue to survive until then. And so they get pressure from their investors to forget the national security side, just go commercial. It's this terrible situation, so what do we need to fix that? Number one, we need a more flexible set of funding authorities to bridge that gap. One idea is to allow the services to have some greater reprogramming authorities within mission areas or across portfolios so that at the end of the year, when they'd have something that didn't work, they can scrape up money there and put it into the next iteration of development for the thing that does work and maybe get another year of bridge funding to get to that production contract. That obviously requires some working with Congress to get them comfortable that they will have the transparency and oversight, but they need to give the department that kind of flexibility. I also think it involves bringing the ultimate end user into the earliest contact. So, you have a program manager who is watching this thing like a hawk from the beginning and is already thinking about how it's going to disrupt and be integrated into something he or she is responsible for. And you have to incent that rather than just rewarding this rigorous, we only care about cost and schedule. You've got to incent program managers if you can get better performance at lower cost. You've got to be a disruptor yourself. You've got to bring new ideas into what you're managing to do, which is a very different approach. It's not easy to do, but we have to try to figure that out. For each of the key priority areas, whether it's AI or robotics or quantum or hypersonics, whatever it is, we could do some mapping of which of our allies really has cutting edge work going on, either in their research universities or in their innovation base, and look for opportunities of where we perhaps get farther faster by sharing some of that. There are all kinds of ways to do this. One is to cross-invest. I know InQtel has started investing in UK companies, Australian companies, for example, with certain priorities in mind. I would love to see DIU get into the business of starting to bring some of those allied companies in. I think this needs to be a topic of policy discussion of where we collectively go after some of these areas with joint ventures or joint technology development and more efforts like that at scale. It's a very important area particularly given that both China and Russia are going to be leveraging those technologies in ways that are really counter to our Western values in terms of surveillance systems and without respect to personal privacy and all kinds of things. And I think the more we have a common values-based approach to technology with our allies, the stronger we can be in showing up at an international forum where standards are being set or norms are being set and so forth. So, what legacy programs should be downsized to fund investment in emerging technologies? It's a great and necessary question because the DoD always has more programs than budget. But I think with COVID and with the recession, whoever wins the White House in November, you're going to see a flattening of the DoD budget. The sort of assumptions of 3-5% to growth over and above inflation, that's not going to hold no matter who is in the White House. So you're going to have to make some tough trade-offs. I can't give you an answer off the top of my head, but I can tell you how I would think it through. I think we need to look mission area by mission area and look across services at portfolios of capabilities to ask what is the mix that we need so that we have the platforms we need, but also the money to invest and incorporate the emerging technologies that will make those legacy platforms survivable, relevant, combat effective in the future. And so it really has to happen on a mission area basis. I think in some cases you may find redundant capabilities within or between services. Sometimes you'll say, I don't want that redundancy. I'm going to make a determination, and one is going to be a winner and the other is going to be a loser. But sometimes, for the sake of resilience, for the sake of complicating adversary attack planning, you may want redundancy. You may want multiple different approaches to accomplish a particular task so this has to be done with very strong analytic grounding, looking at both performance and capability but also cost and so forth. My bias is that we have to be much more aggressive in going down the road of human and machine teaming and in gaining mass, gaining capacity and complicating the other side's planning process by incorporating unmanned in all domains. More unmanned undersea, on the sea, in the air and beyond. If we can crack the code on that integration, that is going to give us, for the cost of the system, a lot more capacity and capability. We are finding one of the most important things we're doing, who knew, is creating a handbook for the DoD folks to say, here are your authorities, you may not know who you have for bringing tech talent in, here are the best practices in terms of how to approach the hiring process, here are the kinds of things you need to have in place to make those folks successful and give them the tools they need to really contribute, so trying to take all the learnings of where it's been tried and failed or where it succeeded and why, and put it in a handbook for the DOD hiring authorities to say, here's your own learnings that you can build on to get that tech talent in at greater scale and with greater speed. One of the key barriers is still the clearance process. That seems to hold people up for a bit. But I think the department is seriously working on trying to reduce some of those barriers. Then the second piece, I would say, is career path. The services are actually sitting on a lot of STEM talent, but they don't manage them as STEM talent. You know, they force the young captain who is the Air Force AI specialist to leave and go out and be on a squadron staff in order to check the box so he can get his next promotion. The services need to design career paths for technologists. So that they can get rewarded, promoted, and reach leadership positions as technologists. Otherwise, we will underleverage the people who are already in the force. I think the long pole in the tent is this notion of joint all domain command and control in an environment that will be constantly contested. So, the analogy is how do you build the equivalent of a resilient electrical grid as your command and control network? so that if on part of it you have an electronic warfare attack and one end of it goes down, the system automatically reroutes and is connecting shooters and sensors in a different way that allows them to keep operating without missing a beat. So, it's coming up with how the key elements of stitching together a network of networks that has that resilience and an ability to connect and operate at the edge even during periods where there's disruption and you can't call back to headquarters that to me is the long pole in the tent for future multi-domain operations that's very distributed approach to warfare that will be necessary the second piece is the technical aspects of human machine learning and how that really works and again in multiple domains whether it's under sea or on the sea or in the air or above that is another key point and then just lots of applications that can increase the accuracy and speed of our decision making faster than that of the other side just humans still making the decisions but getting the right information, the right analysis to them at the right moment in time where we can make the decision and gain that advantage in the cycle of competition. So, how can the Defense Department and our leadership unify the U.S. against these threats in a highly partisan and divided political environment? It's a great question and it points to this question of leadership. We need a president and a commander-in-chief to step forward and provide a vision to make the case to provide the sort of nature of the challenges, the threat assessment, why it's important to the prosperity and security of Americans at home and what we need to do to go after it. I would love to see a moonshot moment kind of speech, a Kennedy speech that sort of says, we're in this competition and this is really going to matter to our way of life. But we're America, we know how to do this. We came out of the Great Depression, we came out of World War II, we came out of Vietnam, and we have done this before. We are in crisis. We are going to come out of this and we are going to be stronger and all of us need to help. So, how are you going to help drive investment in the drivers of American competitiveness? And some of it will be doing great work in STEM in our research universities. Some of it will be investing in 21st century infrastructure. Some of it will be developing these new technologies that can transform both our society and our economy and our military. But really inspiring Americans to say, We need your talents. We need everybody to step up and help, and that's what I'm looking for. And I haven't seen it recently, but I'm looking for that kind of leadership. I think we should all feel some desire, but also an obligation, to serve. I mean, to be partaking in all the incredible freedoms and benefits of this country. What can we give back? For some of us, it's going to be going into government service or serving in the military. But there are ways to serve in other parts of the U.S. government. There are ways to serve in nonprofits. There are all kinds of ways to get involved in enriching society and helping to serve the United States. And so find whatever that area of passion is for you. Find the time to do that. Maybe it's going to be through your work, but maybe it's going to be through some of the activities you do when you're not at work. If we all stepped up to that sort of drive to serve, it doesn't have to be in government we'd enrich our society so greatly. So, the homework assignment is, find that passion and that path to service whether it's going into government for a stint, advising or helping or investing in some other way that's going to make your community or the country or the world a better place. Lessons Learned Michelle Flournoy is an experienced former senior defense official who is thinking deeply and critically about how to best address emerging national security challenges. She would be a great SecDef. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. We would like to hear from you, so please send your thoughts to comments at clearshore.us or visit us at clearshore.us.